You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Sometimes the, uh, the book of James gets a bad rap. Um, because to some, the book of James just doesn't seem to have uh, much of a coherent argument. Uh, it's not really easy to follow. It's not like one of Paul's epistles, like Ephesians, for example, uh, which is obviously a well-crafted, well-structured, step by, well-structured, step-by-step, easy-to-follow argument with a beginning, a middle, and an end, an application flowing from the foundation laid in the first part of the letter. James, to many, appears to be a book that is just full of random commands, random disconnected exhortations. Uh, uh, so they say, well, from verses 2 through 4, he's talking about trials. And then in verse, uh, verses 5 through 8, he moves on to a new topic, and now he's dealing with wisdom. And then he switches to yet another topic in verses 9 through 11, he's dealing with poverty. And then a little later on, he's going to switch and talk about temptation. That's not what's going on in this letter. Uh, James isn't throwing out random Uh, pithy statements hoping something is going to stick and be helpful. Uh, James does have a point in the letter, and once you take a closer look, you can find the connective tissue from section to section that helps everything to make more sense. So, it is true in verses 2 through 4, James introduces us to the topic of trials and how we're supposed to think about them, that we are to count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. But in verse 5, James isn't switching topics. As we saw last week, James is talking about our need for wisdom in the trial to see our circumstances from a divine, heavenly perspective. Without it, uh, we're not going to be able to have the kind of godly joy and hope that we should have in the middle of our difficulties. And that to get such wisdom, all we need to do is ask God, Uh, ask Him in sincere faith for that wisdom, and God's going to give it to us generously. And so now we come to verses 9 through 11, and James is talking about poverty and riches. He's not switching to a brand new, unconnected topic. He's not done talking about trials. Flowing from his teaching on the need for divine wisdom to help us respond to our trials with a godly attitude, he now gives us a concrete illustration of what God's wisdom actually looks like compared to human wisdom. So that's where we're going next. So, with that said, let's go ahead and hear more of God's wisdom right now. Go ahead and stand with me. Uh, it's a tradition here at Harbin's Church uh, every Sunday before the message for us to stand together before hearing the sermon text as a way of reminding us of the importance of the centrality of the Word of God. Uh, it's a way of demonstrating reverence and respect for God's Word. And we are in James chapter 1, and we are starting in verse 9. And we're going to read on down through verse 12. The Holy Spirit says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we approach your holy and inspired word, I pray that you would give us the 
eyes to see and the ears to hear your wisdom, and that you would help us to apply your wisdom to our life, to our trials, through everything that we're going through. So speak, Father, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the previous two weeks, we've seen James talk about the various kinds of trials that come into our lives and that they're sent into our lives by God uh, for the testing and strengthening of our faith. God intends to produce something good in those trials, and He's working all things together for good. Two weeks from now, when we return to James, we're going to look at the next section where he talks about temptation. And a temptation is different from a trial. God doesn't tempt. The devil tempts, and our own sinful hearts tempt us, and the purpose of the tempter is not to build up your faith, but to destroy it. Now, right in the middle of this conversation about trials and temptations, uh, bridging these two concepts together, James here, in the verses that we just read, wants to remind you of your identity, because the way to rightly respond to both trials and temptations has everything to do with who you really are. And the example he gives us of a heavenly wisdom that is rooted in our true identity revolves around this idea of poverty and riches. And I think that's a fitting example because often the most significant trials that somebody has to face in life uh, and often the most significant temptations that somebody has to endure uh, revolve around money, earthly possessions, worldly status, position, and power. What James has to say is as relevant for us in the 21st century as it was for James's first century audience. James is aiming, as I, as I heard somebody say once, to help his readers to view their circumstances not economically or socially, but theologically and biblically. And that's important. Right theology will help us produce right thinking, which should produce right attitudes and right heart responses, which will influence our behavior and the way that we navigate the trials and temptations of life. And what James shows us here in these verses is a paradox. You know what a paradox is? We're actually discussing this in a recent theology reading group I was in. Um, A paradox is something that appears to be a contradiction on the surface, but it turns out to be actually true, surprisingly true. Uh, G.K. Chesterton maybe had the best definition of a paradox when he said, a paradox is truth standing on its head shouting for attention. And indeed, often a paradox is a truth that that seems to turn our conventional wisdom and our conventional understanding on its head. That's exactly what James is doing when he turns our attention first to the poor who are rich. The poor who are rich. It's in verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, that Greek word there for lowly, that could be translated as poor or humble, uh, as in one who is in humble circumstances. Uh, the Septuagint, which is the, the, Greek, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word to depict somebody who is of little significance in the eyes of the world, maybe even those who are oppressed and downtrodden by the powerful. And this word, in its various shades of meaning, is rightly applied to most of James's original audience. They were Christians who had fled Jerusalem during that initial first persecution of that early church in Jerusalem. Uh, They found themselves on the run. They found themselves as refugees in lands uh, that were not their own. 
uh, the place that was not their home. They were socially ostracized. They were on the, the low rungs of the societal ladder with little to call their own. If anybody's in a trial, they're in a trial big time. And James' encouragement for these lowly believers is unusual. He says, let that lowly brother, let that poor brother, let that one who is knocked down and despised and who is regarded as insignificant in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the prevailing culture, that one who has nothing in the bank and who lives in a shack, let that lowly brother boast. Let him brag in his exaltation. Now, on the surface, that counsel seems absolutely ridiculous, doesn't it? But what James wants you to do is he wants to help you to turn your main focus away from your poverty or your sickness or your persecution or you being ostracized from society, and he wants you to focus on heavenly realities that are just as real as the things that you're going through right now. In fact, James says you need to boast about those things. That's odd. Uh, typically, we associate boasting with something that is, that is evil. Uh, we associate it with arrogant pride, uh, something that we're not supposed to do. A, a sinful, prideful boasting puts self at the center, puts our own strengths and accomplishments in the spotlight with no reference to God. That's not the kind of boasting that James is talking about here. James says, let that lowly brother exalt, uh, uh, boast in his exaltation. He has not exalted himself. He has been exalted by another. And so the Christian finds himself, surprisingly, in a very high position, not because of what we have accomplished, but because of what God has graciously done for us. As a matter of fact, the, the lowly, despised, economically poor believer has a, has a much higher position than the wealthiest and most powerful unbelievers in the world. Did you know that? Uh, think about this. The, the king of Saudi Arabia, uh, I was looking up on the internet, rich people. <laughs> I want to find people who are really, really rich. King of Saudi Arabia, King Salman. Yes, it's spelled like the fish, but pronounced differently, I'm sure. King, king Salman. I read that he has a net worth of nearly $20 billion. That's billion with a B. If you're here as a believer this morning, your position, your status is way higher than his. And you're thinking, no, it's not. You're wondering, how in the world can that be? Well, you and I, brothers and sisters, have been marked out and chosen by God. He has adopted us into His family. John chapter 1 says that to all who receive Christ, God has given them, God has given you the right to be called children of God. King Salmon does not receive Jesus Christ, so he does not enjoy that privilege. Matter of fact, Jesus said to His original disciples, and by extension to us, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you my friends. We are friends of God. Do you know that most people in the world cannot make a legitimate claim to being a child of God? Do you know that most people in the world cannot legitimately make a claim to being a friend of God? Narrow is the road that leads to life, Jesus says, and few are on it. But if you're here as a believer this morning, guess what? You are among the few. You may not be a celebrity. You may not be a a powerful politician or a global leader. You don't own own a Fortune 500 company. You're not in the world's in crowd. But guess what? You are on the inner circle of the king of the cosmos. And James is telling you, boast in that. 
Exalt in that. Let your identity be rooted in that. The Apostle Peter says that you are part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are royalty. Did you know that? You really are. You're not of the, of the royal house over in Saudi Arabia or over uh, in the UK, but you are princes and princesses of the universe because you've become the special object of God's care. An illustration of what God has done for you is found in the book of Ruth. Some of you may know the story. Uh, Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, they're poor and destitute, and they're so desperate for food that, that Ruth has to go into the field of a man named Boaz uh, to, to get uh, the leftover grain that was left behind by the workers. Basically, they're picking up scraps to survive. And Boaz finds out about this, and he ends up treating her with great kindness and preferential care. And, uh, and Ruth chapter 2 says that she fell on her face and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She is amazed. She knows her status. She knows her position. She knows she is lowly. And then she says to him in Ruth chapter 2, verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to me, though I am not one of your servants. In other words, she says, I don't even have the status of a servant. I'm beneath them, and yet you've shown me this favor. And Boaz and Ruth are a great illustration of your situation because Boaz ends up serving as Ruth's kinsman redeemer, the one who comes and lifts her up from her destitution, raises her up by his side, and makes her his bride. And so Boaz stands as one who is a shadow, a picture, a type of a greater redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has taken a people lower than Ruth and has exalted them infinitely higher than she. As the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, the very uh, set of verses that we are memorizing here, says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a pretty lowly position if there ever was one, isn't it? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you, Christian brother, you, Christian sister, have been raised from the lowliest of positions, a condemned, hell-bound sinner, and Jesus has become your kinsman redeemer and has made you a part of the bride of Christ. No matter what the world says, no matter what the circumstances around you may say, that's your true identity, that's who you really are. And it may not be obvious now, but one day it will be. In Romans chapter 8, Paul declares that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The point is that we have true riches. Uh, John MacArthur says that if you're poor, socially humiliated, economically humiliated, accept that humiliation because poverty is a short-lived trial. It's just for this life. 
and those who are poor in Christ have the hope of eternal riches. In other words, don't, don't look to draw joy out of this world, and you'll never be disappointed. If you're looking for your joy in the circumstances of life, you're never going to have true joy. That's wisdom. Because the temptation for the poor man, the temptation for the lowly woman, is to, is to fix his eyes, to fix her eyes on the lowly circumstances and on his dissatisfaction with that and begin to think, if only my circumstances would change, if only I could make more money, if only I could get out of this mess, if only I could be accepted by the world, my life would be so much better if only, if only, if only. James is telling you that is not the way to wisdom. Wisdom is pointing you away from those other things and pointing you towards your true identity in Christ. Wisdom says, I do not mourn over and complain about the things I don't have that I want. Instead, I glory over what I do have in Christ. I'm going to repeat that because it's very important, and I think some of you might have missed it. Wisdom says, I do not mourn over and complain about the things that I don't have that I want. Instead, I glory over what I do have in Christ. Wisdom leads us to not be angry with God about Him not giving us what we think we need. Instead, wisdom leads us to respond like Ruth and come to God and ask God, why would someone like you show interest and favor in somebody like me? Why do I find myself once spiritually low and bankrupt? Why do I find myself now in possession of the greatest treasure that anyone could possess, which is Jesus Christ and His kingdom? Christian brother, Christian sister, there are many things in life you want. There are many things that you wish you had, and you're not getting it. Let me ask you this. Do you think God is being stingy with you? Be honest. If you're tempted to think that, think this. Can God give you something better than He has already given you? The wisdom of God is calling out to you this morning in your lowly situation and telling you that God is not stingy. He has given you the greatest treasure. He has given you Christ. You have Him now, and in the age to come, you'll see and enjoy and experience Him more than ever. So boast in that. Glory in that. I wonder if you do. I wonder if you ever have done that. Jesus, in one of my favorite parables, says that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he had and buys that field. You know what that means? It means that what you have in Jesus Christ is of greater value than anything you could have and anything that you don't have but that you really want. Jesus is better than all of those things. And I would challenge us all, myself included, to ask ourselves a question. And if you've fallen asleep so far and you've turned out, because I know it's hot, uh, hot in here, so if you've tuned out, and you've fallen asleep, I want you to wake up, and I want you to think hard about this because this is incredibly important because to honestly ask and honestly answer this question can unlock the door to a wealth of practical application for you this week. And the question is this, as I think about my current trials and difficulties and circumstances, how often do I respond to that with boasting in my riches in Christ Jesus? 
how much time do I spend lamenting over what I want but can't have versus rejoicing and boasting over what I already have, which is far greater value than anything else in life I may hope to have? I'm pausing because I'm giving you a moment to think about that and answer it, not, not out loud, but honestly and humbly in your mind. I already know my answer, and much to my shame and embarrassment, my time and my thoughts are often focused way more on the lesser things that I lack than on the much greater thing that I already possess. I can talk a big game, Deemer Webb can talk a big game about how Jesus is awesome and Jesus is wonderful and Jesus is the treasure, and yet does my response when I lose my lesser treasures or when I can't have certain lesser treasures that I want, does my response to that betray a different reality in my heart? Some of you are just as challenged by that as I am. And so I pray that God would give us wisdom, that He would reframe our thinking according to our true identity, and that the reality of our rich exaltation in Christ would take hold of our imaginations and really make a difference in how we respond to our trials and difficulties this week, Uh, that we would respond with joy and hope and rock-solid confidence and not despair. James moves on now from addressing the poor who are rich, and he turns our attention now to another paradox, and we're looking at the rich who are poor. The rich who are poor. Most of James's original audience would have been materially poor believers, but evidently there were some, a minority, who were more well-off. And so now James has a word for the rich. And some of you now may really be tempted to tune out because your first instinct is to think, well, this definitely isn't for me. I'm not rich. I'm barely making it from paycheck to paycheck, can't afford health care, got nothing in savings. But here's what I want you to realize. You have a higher degree of wealth a higher standard of living than most, if not all, of James's original audience. And compared to the rest of the world today, you are among the most wealthy people on the planet. About a billion people live on less than a dollar a day. More than half of the world lives with less than $10 a day. And the median global income is $2,100 a year. A year! Some of us bring more than that in in just one paycheck. If your family income is at least $10,000 a year, you are wealthier than 84% of the world. If it's at least $50,000 a year, you are wealthier than more than 99% of the world. Your standard of living is greater than most people in the world and most people in the Bible. We forget how truly rich we are compared to so many others. So what James has to say next, guess what? It's for you. It's for you because you're rich. Now, don't read something into James's exhortation that isn't here. Some people think that being rich is wrong in and of itself. The Bible doesn't say that. Some of the godliest men in the Bible were wealthy. Think about Abraham, Job, David. Material riches are not bad. But material riches do present a dangerous trap and snare for many, many people. In fact, riches keep many people out of the kingdom of heaven because it's easier for a camel to to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom, Jesus says. And why is that? 
because wealth can become a God that keeps you from the real God. Uh, Wealth can create a sense of self-sufficiency, and with it it can create a false sense of satisfaction, and it can purchase many pleasures, and it seems on the surface to be able to solve so many of our problems. It really does. It's It's the thing that we think that if we just had more of it, if we just had a little bit more of it, everything would be fine. It's very interesting. No matter who you ask, no matter where they are on the pay scale, and they, they, may, they may want some more money, and you, and you ask them, well, how much, do you, how much do you need? Just a little more. Just, it's always just a little bit more, no matter, no matter where you're at on that scale. Jesus elsewhere warns about the deceitfulness of riches, and many fall for the deceitfulness of riches. There's a reason why millions of dollars are wasted on lottery tickets every single year, because people are looking for hope. Uh, they're looking for the solution. They're looking for a kind of salvation. And so you can see how all of, the, uh, all of the things that we should be seeking in God can be transferred to wealth. The Apostle Paul gives this warning in 1 Timothy. Well, my clicker is just not doing very well today. There we go. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's a horrifying verse. But notice that's not just money per se, but the love of money. That's the problem. It's not just a piece of paper that people love. That would be kind of weird. People love money because of what it can do for them. Uh, with money comes material possessions, status, influence, power, prestige, things that are the exact opposite of the lifestyle of that lowly brother James was first talking to, and, and yet to put your hope in money is vain. Uh, we're tempted to think that if we, if we got that raise that we were looking for, if we, if we won the lottery… How many of you done that? You know, they, they talk about the Powerball thing, the jackpot, Mega Millions, you hear on the radio, and, and, and the winning ticket will win, you know, $350 million. Who hasn't sat around and thought about that and how awesome life would be if suddenly $350 million was dropped into my bank account? We, we, we've all thought about that. And, and we have all of these dreams about how just amazing everything would be and how all of our problems would be solved as long as we had a little more money or a lot more money in that case we would finally be satisfied. But money, the Scriptures tell us, and the things that it buys never, ever has the power to bring you to satisfaction. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 5, and Solomon, by the way, was massively rich, ridiculously, filthy rich. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And even the believer is not immune to the lure of money. Uh, is not, uh, the believer is not immune to the temptation of wrapping up his hope and his identity and his sense of safety and security and money and the things that money buys. So, what's James's solution? Now, the wisdom of God for the rich brother is essentially the same as the wisdom of God for the lowly brother. Both the rich and the poor must disregard the facade of hope and security that money brings and turn their eyes instead towards greater spiritual realities. So, he says in verse 10, let the rich boast in his humiliation. Now, what does that mean? Well, the rich will experience temptation to think that they are great. 
uh, that they're really something else, that they're self-sufficient, they have money, they have influence, others respect them and admire them and want to be their friend. It is interesting when you get a little bit of money how, how all of a sudden everyone loves you and wants to be your best friend. But James is bursting that bubble, and he's telling you, essentially, don't believe your own press. Uh, one commentator states it well when he writes that the rich believer is not to boast in his wealth or his elevated position in society, but in his identification with Christ and his people, and this is a matter of humiliation in the eyes of the world. John Calvin says that James tells the rich Christians to glory in their lowliness, their smallness, to restrain those lofty motives that swell out of prosperity. In other words, the rich Christian is to cultivate the same poverty of spirit he experienced when he first came to Christ. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, uh, blessed are the poor. Not, not poor financially. He said, blessed, is the poor in, blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because the first step to getting to heaven is recognizing that you're nothing recognizing that you're spiritually bankrupt, recognizing that you're not great, recognizing that you're a sinner, you're wretched, you're deserving of judgment, and that there really is nothing in and of yourself that can commend you to God. Others may be impressed with you because of your wealth and your social status and all of your awesome accomplishments, but God isn't. Because in your sin, you have accumulated a massive spiritual debt to God that your money can't pay off and your worldly influence can't change. So, don't boast in your money, uh, in your possessions, in the business you built. That doesn't define you, and it can't save you. That's not your identity. Boast instead that God has humbled you, that He has wrecked your pride, that He has opened your eyes to your sin, and, and that humiliation led you to know God in a saving and intimate way. James says we boast in that because riches are fleeting. Look, look again at verse 10. He says, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. James, having grown up in the intense heat of Palestine, would have been very familiar with this phenomenon. Uh, you could have a day where while you're having breakfast and you look out the window and, and, and things are blooming and blossoming and all looks wonderful. And then a blasting heat comes in the middle of the day and just scorches everything. And by dinner time, everything that looked so lovely and impressive in the morning is, is now shriveled up and dead in the evening. All happens in one day. And James is saying that's what riches are like. They're, they're fleeting. Really, he's, not, he's saying not just riches, but the rich man. He himself is here today, gone tomorrow. Verse 11 says the rich man will die in the midst of his pursuits, in the midst of doing deals, making business transactions, expanding the empire. One day he's king of the world, next day he's a corpse. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives a powerful, powerful illustration of this. And he says in chapter 12, verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then after that, he tells an interesting story. He says, the, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So only a fool will put his hope in earthly riches and center his life on that. But godly wisdom, godly wisdom points you in a different direction. You don't boast in that. You, you don't boast in being seen as high and lofty in the eyes of the world because of your social status, because of your money. You boast in the fact that you've been brought low by God. You've been humbled, and through your humiliation, through recognizing your bankruptcy and, and, po- and your poverty of spirit, that through that you now have God who is your superior treasure. And so Jeremiah says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, and let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. That's worth bragging about. That's worth exulting in. Wisdom of God enables you to see through the glitter of worldly wealth, and it becomes exposed as ultimately unreliable and temporary. And so, the Apostle Paul writes, you can ignore that first sentence up there, that was an error, first couple of sentences, there it is down at the bottom starting with the quote, as for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, not be prideful, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And so, if you are seeing reality through the lens of God's wisdom, you can handle the trials and temptations that revolve around wealth. And if you lose the wealth, if the stock market crashes, if, you suddenly, if suddenly everything you own is gone, you're not going to completely disintegrate because you never banked your hopes on those uncertain, unreliable things anyway. You bank them on God, the true treasure of your heart. And the one who, unlike riches, is always certain, always faithful, and always able to provide for your deepest needs. And once you're able to obey 1 Timothy 6, 17, then you're able to obey the very next verse, which says that the rich, the rich Christian, the rich brother, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. See, once you stop putting your hope in wealth, you're able to be more generous and give it away for the sake of those in need and the spread of the kingdom. And, and, and you won't do that. You won't do that if you have a wrong perspective on wealth because Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so ultimately the path forward for both the poor brother and the rich brother brings them to the same place. Each is, to, each is exhorted to see his lot in light of spiritual realities to his financial uh, adversities. The poor brother says, but how rich I am. To his earthly glories, the rich brother says, but what a wretch I am. And they both rejoice and boast in the provision of God. They both keep life in perspective of eternity. Which brings us now to the final destiny of both the rich and the poor. James gives a word of encouragement, and it's applied to, to people in both situations. Both who are enduring trials and struggles of life, and he says to them, in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So we've come full circle, haven't we? Uh, This whole section started out talking about trials. When James gave you that crazy command in verse 2 to count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. And and if you remember uh, from a few weeks ago, we talked about verse 3 where this testing of our faith produces steadfastness. 
Do you remember what steadfastness is? We talked about this. Steadfastness is perseverance, uh, endurance, it's spiritual toughness, spiritual grit, uh, a stick-to-itiveness. The the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And sometimes, especially in the trial, we can feel like we're running out of gas and we'll never get to the finish line. But James says there is a blessing for the one who sticks it out, who keeps going. He says in verse 12, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. Now, when James talks about a crown, don't think about a big gem-studded headpiece worn by European kings and queens. That's what most of us think when we think crowns. Uh, That's not the image here. James's audience would not have been thinking about that. Uh, When they would have come across this word crown, they would have immediately thought about the victory wreath that would have been placed on an athlete's head uh, after the end of a race that he's won, a, a sporting event. Uh, the image here is, is making it through the race successfully and receiving the prize at the end of it all. I don't think that James is talking about an actual physical crown. That would be a little anticlimactic, don't you think? I've been running this Christian race for 20, 30, 60 years. I've been pushing through the painful afflictions of life. I've been growing in steadfastness. And after all that, I get a little headpiece with some leaves sticking out of it. That's anticlimactic. No, God is not stingy. It's not what he's talking about. He's got a better prize than that. He calls it the crown of life. It's a symbol. It's a symbol of eternal life. Now, if you're a believer, you already have eternal life. But there's an, in an, another sense that you are still waiting to experience the fullness of that life. And James is saying that in the midst of your trials and tribulations and afflictions, whether you're rich, poor, somewhere in between, In the middle of all of that, turn your gaze away from the difficulty of the trial and turn your gaze towards the finish line. Your trials are not the end of the story. There's something better coming. It's the fullness of eternal life. And what is eternal life? What's eternal life? It's not living forever. People in hell live forever. Eternal life is is, is something more than that. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 17. He says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what's waiting for you at the finish line. That's your glory. That's your prize. That's your crown. That's what you boast in. You know God now, but there's coming a day that you're going to know Him in a better and closer and deeper way than ever before. Uh, you You will be able to see and perceive and enjoy the superior true treasure more than you ever have in this life. And, and you, will, you will finally know in its fullness what the psalmist speaks of. In Psalm 16, he says, you've made known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That's what's coming to you, poor Christian. Uh, that's what's on the horizon, rich Christian. Uh, that, that's, that's what will be here very soon, suffering Christian. So count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness, a steadfastness that will keep you persevering in the trial, that will keep you running the race, that will see you across the finish line, and will make sure that you, at the end, get the crown of life. You see, the fool looks ahead five years, ten years, perhaps even twenty years, and plans 
what he thinks will benefit him best. But the wise person fixes his sight beyond the grave, for he knows the high will be made low, and the low will be made high. And how, how's, this all, how's this all possible? 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. On that first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and thousands were cheering for him. And they were waving palm, palm branches and they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna! Hosanna means save now. Save now. And it seems like everything's going great. Uh, But underneath the surface, almost everyone there was seeking a a treasure that was different than what Jesus was offering. In fact, throughout his entire life, most of the people who were initially interested in Jesus were interested in some sort of material gain other than Jesus, whether that be the healing of diseases or food or money. Uh, Many of those waving those palm branches were looking for Jesus to come and immediately establish a political empire and defeat their enemies, and usher in a national golden age where they could ride Jesus' coattails to earthly power and glory. That's what so many of them were expecting and looking for and hoping for. And Jesus comes in, and He rides into the Jerusalem, and, and, and as the, the cheers and the adulation and the applause dies down, He turns to the people, and He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And the people despise that message because they love their lives in this world too much. They love earthly treasures and pleasures and prestige and influence, all those sorts of things. And this is why the scene of adulation and applause for Jesus at the beginning of the week on Palm Sunday changes to a scene of anger and hatred on Good Friday where the crowds are shouting, crucify Him. Where are all His supporters now? Where are the Hosannas now? Crucify Him. And yet, that's exactly why Jesus came. Jesus, the richest being in the whole universe, creator of the cosmos, came from heaven to earth and experienced the greatest kind of poverty. He was hung on a cross, mocked and naked and exposed. If anyone was lowly, it was Christ. If anyone was despised, it was Christ. If anyone was humiliated, it was Him. And in His poverty, He received upon Himself the sins of poor sinners and rich sinners. And like a sacrificial lamb, He endured the wrath of God and died in the place of sinners. And so all who believe in Him, trusting in His payment for sins, will find their debt wiped clean and made rich in Him. And they will find themselves to be the inheritors of a kingdom to come later that is greater than any kind of kingdom we could have right now. And so whether you're here this morning as an unbeliever or whether you're here this morning as a believer, or whether you're here as materially a a rich person or whether you regard yourself as a poor person, uh, whether you're going through uh, uh, the most difficult of trials or the most intense of temptations, the solution is the same. Look to Jesus Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what the Scriptures call Him, the power and the wisdom of God. Look to Him receive His all-sufficient grace and the riches that are found in Him, and realize that if all you have is Christ, then all you have is all you need.
Let's pray.